out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is The C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we love a special guest. This week, it's going to be the turn of the Belgium post-punk band, all the way from Brussels. It is The Names, because I very recently spoke to their main man, Mikel Sordinia, to find out more about life, love, poetry, and all the other groovy stuff. Anyway, this is the interview, and after quite a long time of casual chat before we got down to that very important subject that was the early formative years. This is it. And for those who... I could give you some background to the band beforehand, but um, you'll find out more about it throughout this interview, which does go on for a very long time. But anyway, it's quality chat. And let's face it, what else are you going to do in lockdown world? Anyway, Mikhail, tell us more about your formative years. It all happened during the summer of 1967. The summer of love. Yeah, but I mean, I was very, very well. I was too young, much too young, to uh, to share a lot of that. But I mean, a lot of interesting records came out. You know, I mean, my the very first one my parents bought me was a White Shade of Pale by Procol Harum. You know, which is are certainly worst choices for a first single. And among the very first things that I bought myself, there was Good Vibrations, you know, the Beach Boys, and Jumping Jack Flash, my first single by the, the Stones. So it could have, it, it could have been worse. And uh, from that moment on, you know, all the pocket money I could get from my grandparents and my parents went, didn't go into suites or whatever. Uh, it got into into music, so I remember every each uh, every each week I could go to uh, a record shop when you could actually there there were small boxes and you could listen. There was a oh, system yes. put the record on and then listen to it. So I took like fifteen or seventeen uh, new singles, knowing that I could buy only one. So I spent one hour. And when people you were looking at me, you say, "Well, are you going to buy something?" I bought something, and I bought one one uh, single uh, vinyl uh, every uh, every each week, and that was the start of me falling in love with uh, rock music. Because yes. previous to that, there was a lot of uh, strong classical stuff played at home, uh, like Mahler, for instance. There was a lot of music around. Uh, a lot of jazz and a lot of good jazz. I remember I'm, my, my, my parents left me one night, but I was, I, I, was, I was two, so I couldn't, you know, complain to go to see Ella Fitzgerald on stage in Brussels. And it's a mythical concert. Now it's all over YouTube because it was properly recorded and filmed. And uh, even now I'm sort of, you know, envious about that yes. but, I mean there was music and also French music you know uh, by people maybe you don't know like uh, Georges Brassens, Léo Ferré, French singers so music was always there and my father was playing the piano and the accordion and uh, so it was quite a bohemian house that you grew up in not at all my, my father was actually you know uh, selling clothes you know, it was, uh, um, 
he was in the clothes business. Well, it's not business. He was selling clothes to shops, you know, uh, you don't know exactly, to retailers. Right. Because he was like advocating, you know, uh, um, clothes collections. So he was actually in business. Yes. So, and uh, and what, what, he and had music on the side. Yes. It was not bohemian. It was rather, you know, petit bourgeois uh, uh, surroundings and, 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 and atmosphere, which meant that also I got um, a lot of freedom in terms of choices yes. that I make. And from 14 on, I was playing music, you know, so uh, and, and having bands. So it started really early. So was there a sense of optimism in, in Belgium, Brussels at the time? Where did you, I mean, obviously when you're two, you, you don't get a sense, but I just wondered if, if you're looking back, it was quite an optimistic time. It was an optimistic time and a lot of things happened. I mean, the, the society and the world were, was already opening to other culture, not at the same, you know, uh, with the same openness it reached later, but still, you know, and, um, and we had in 1958, we had the Universal Exhibition, you know, in Brussels, where the, the atomium, you know, symbol of Brussels. Oh, yes, yes. Really. Built for that. So there were people from all around. I was too small. You know, I went there, but I don't have any recollection of it. Uh, it was too early. But I mean, there was a lot of things happening in, uh, in Belgium at that time and in Brussels. And also, we didn't know about it, but we were starting to live, you know, uh, what we called in, what we call here in, in, Euro, in Europe, French people and Belgian people, les 30 glorieuses, the 30 glorious years, you know, no war, um, employment for everyone. You know, we didn't know that it would be that sort of uh, era where now everybody is, is looking back at it and say, well, you were damn lucky. Mm. Well, we were, but we didn't think in those terms. And when I was 13, uh, May 68, which was the revolution, you know, um, in Paris, and uh, a lot of stuff hit it politically too. And I was raised in a family whose sensibility was leftist, leftist, mm -hmm. uh, way leftist. My, my dad, before, you know, entering into, into business because he had to earn a living, was actually uh, heading the Jeunesse Socialiste, which is the socialist youth for Brussels. So I was raised uh, free, free to make my choices and with the political, you know, sensitivity probably among, uh, above the, the usual. But that cocktail, you know, going into music was like amazing because I found way to say things that I wanted to say. So in, in, and in that way, I think it was the best uh, about, about that. With the freedom yes. I got, is that actually the bands wanted to communicate about things and reflect about the world. And, uh, and then, you know, uh, as, a, as, a as a high school student and then as a university student, music and, uh, and, uh, and, you know, and working at making a better world were always like together, you know, 
and um, and it's it's strange because then the punk era uh, came up, and we were part of that, and we came from optimism to you know that kind of nihilism that everybody say punk is nihilism etc yes certainly the message was but and in belgium it was reduced to very short and in and in most countries except for the uk it was reduced to a thing of about fashion you know style of music etc and very short uh reductive messages but in the uk and i was there almost all the time going to see friends going to see when I was a teenager, going to see concerts. And uh, in the UK, it was very political, very social oriented, and not only in a nihilistic way, you know, people were fighting for the, the bloody rights. And uh, that dimension, every time that I'm, I'm interviewed some in, in Belgium anyway, I'm interviewed every time they, they have sort of a uh, the birthday, you know, oh, 40 years of punk, you know, etc. Let's have some people gather around the table in the radio studio and talk about things. And I always insist on that aspect, that it, how different and how more political it was in the, in the UK at that time. Yes. Well, the UK wasn't a great place in the 70s, especially the early 70s, because there was there was like those two parties, you know, we had the Conservatives and Labour and they were sort of going back and forth. Yep. Things weren't going well. And then we had, you know, there was a lot of unemployment. I mean, Britain after the war was quite a grim place, you know, in the 50s and 60s and the 70s didn't get a, a lot better because then we suddenly had a lot. There was endless strikes. There was a three day week. I mean, you know, there was, I, I do remember one particular winter when you'd sort of be told, you know, when the electricity would go off, you know, for, a, you know, part of the day. So you'd have to kind of get these, they called them tiddy lamps that we'd have on the kitchen table that you go, right, electricity's off, you know, get the tiddy lamp and you sit around, you know, mm. this kind of gas stove boiling some water, just waiting and thinking, blimey, we must go to bed. And, you know, we only had three channels on the television, which doesn't yeah. really matter, but there wasn't, a, you know, it was kind of quite grim and at the same time you know it was that sort of birth of the prog rock period as well with yes and genesis and these great kind of sleeves by roger dean you know the the artwork which is all kind of fantasy while some people were just struggling um no. so britain was kind of quite it, it it was a little bit kind of there was a lot of tension and there was also the rise of the national front and then the punk scene in america was quite different because it started oh, a little a little bit with the velvet underground and then it kind of got the you know the Stooges and then the um, New York uh, the the um, New York Dolls that's the one and then you know obviously it sort of got into the the, the Ramones and there was the whole CBGB scene and the Mud Club and all those kind of ones Max's Kansas City so there was a quite a different sort of vibe in in sort of the New York kind yes of I mean of course you had social conscience you had people you know working on that like Richard Hell I mean who is a, a hero of mine you know blank generation and things like that. So they were ad addressing, you know, generation and social uh, problems. But generally speaking, and of course, very fantastic musicians and, and creators and artists, uh, like for instance, television was a big influence of mine, um, but it was a more artsy uh, scene, you know. Uh, it was really more, you know, linked to, uh, well, let's, let's make art. You know, which was certainly not the point for most punk British punk bands to uh, 
to form and then start playing. But I mean, things were actually uh, summed up in the 60s, you know, uh, uh, from a band that I, I, I liked to, when I was very, very young to, to listen to, uh, the animals, you know, Rick oh, yes. Bird band, they say, we have to get out of this place. You know, this, this <laughs> is, that, that said a lot. And then, I mean, it also there was, and that's something that, that I was really uh, made aware of uh, by, by my, my dad anyway, and some of his friends, is how the class system in the UK, in, in Britain was like not, not to be compared with the way uh, it, um, it was actually operated in our society. Uh, of course, there was a there was a class system, but it was not that obvious, mm. you know. Yes, and, well, uh, I, I not, think a lot of films, a lot of books, actually, uh, actually, are totally uh, did totally take that in in account from the sixties on, you know, uh, in on film and etc. Et and uh, you know, yeah. there was a moment. I mean, one one other one. Uh, of, of my heroes, you know, Michael Caine. You know, I was I was fortunate to do a big interview with him when he had his uh, autobiography released, I think less than two years ago. One of my last really marking interviews. He couldn't, he couldn't have his way with being an actor on film because of his accent, you know, and because of his uh, origins, his background, his social background, but I mean, he's very insistent on the fact that him himself and a few other guys, and, and s s some women too, actually uh, changed the face of things by say, well, imposing, you know, imposing the lower class as movie stars. And that, that's something that, uh, it, it, there was a pivotal moment in the 60s for that. Yes. And it's, uh, and it, 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 it's so interesting. It's so uh, interesting. And when did you, I mean, because for the band, it started yeah. kind of 78 time. I mean, in this country, you know, Thatcher got into power in 79. And then mm -hmm. there was this huge shift. And then we had, you know, the Falkland War, which... You know, Thatcher at that point wasn't at all popular at all. You know, she was kind of, you know, they weren't thinking we'd got a good leader, but then things completely changed. And then suddenly there was this turbo, turbo charged kind of conservative party who just couldn't do anything. I mean, they kind of just went for it by then after the Falkland War, because then there was the miners' strike and they sort of wiped them out. But then at the same time, there was the, you know, the class system you mentioned. I mean, in this country, especially at that time, you know, a lot of the, the you know youth who were sort of left to centre really did feel kind of left out. So there was a lot of unemployment and a lot of people signing on. And there was a, there was other schemes like the Job Seekers Alliance and Enterprise Alliance schemes where people just to try and massage the the unemployment figures, they put them on these schemes to go. Oh, there's not quite so many millions unemployed, but they they were slightly unemployed. In but that was where a lot of bands started because they were just you know claiming benefits and thinking, well, you know, we can play some music and you know yeah. obviously. 
when you're very young, you can drink all day and take drugs. And, you know, what, what, what better way to spend your late teens? So that kind mm. of, I know it's a bit simplistic, but it did also, it did also happen. Um, yeah. And we also had the gatekeepers. We had like the enemy, we had Melody making sounds. We had John Peel, who obviously a John Peel play would give people that oomph. And every city, as you know, from the UK and England and Britain, you know, it's really tiny. So, you know, every, every city would have a club, you know, often on a Monday, Tuesday or Wednesday, you know, at that start of the week, you know, an indie night, an alternative night, all that cliched stuff, you know, where you sort of put on bands and people go and see, and you knew that there'd be 150, 200 people who would probably just turn up because that's what mm -hmm. you did. So, you know, that, that kind of happened. So when, you know, when did the band, your band sort of really sort of start to form and, and take shape? Well, I mean, I was playing uh, with Marc, I mean, uh, Marc Dupré, who is uh, our guitar player, it still is. And, uh, and we were playing with a friend of ours, uh, Robert Francon, and we were playing, you know, covers of songs, I mean, for, for our own, you know, uh, uh, on our own, you know, in a room, uh, not intending to really form a band uh, who would go professional or whatever. It was just having fun. And uh, it was basically, uh, I was writing songs already, but we started by playing songs by the, the Velvet Underground. Um, few songs of the Velvet Underground, another person that we, uh, artist that we like to play songs of was Neil Young. I'm still a big fan. I mean, and, uh, and we were big fans and um, and it clicked, you know, there was something, something between us that made us feel that um, we could do something more. And I had those songs. I didn't have a band at that moment. I had two different bands from, from years before and, uh, and it, it had been one year without having a band. So I had songs and so we started to rehearse uh, songs that I wrote. Mark did write a few songs and then it evolved very quickly because one of the magic things about that era is that it was in the, in 77 and um, that we decided, well, let's, let's have a band. So we uh, asked for, uh, other musicians. And so there were the three of us, two guitars, one bass, I was singing. And, um, and then we found a drummer, Christophe Duntant, uh, who was very young at that time, I think he was 16. And he later, he later became our first keyboard player. And he was the keyboard player during the whole Factory and uh, uh, Disque du Crépuscule era. But at that time, he was playing drums. And then uh, we decided we wanted a girl singer. And so we uh, found, uh, she was even younger, she was 15, Isabelle Henry. And that outfit, you know, became The Passengers, uh, which was uh, the, the name that we chose for the, for, for the band. And things were happening so quickly that before we actually gave a concert, we gave interviews. <laughs> so there were a lot of fanzines, you know, and said, well, we heard you are, can we, can we come and, uh, 
and uh, and hear you in at rehearsals and then make a, an interview. So actually, we had interviews before we had a we had a gig, you know. And when we played our first gig as the Passengers, it was in the winter. It was '78, beginning of the year in the winter, uh, in Brussels in a small club. The place were packed. There were like certainly 150 people, including the leading journalists of that time, you know. The word was that there was this band and they were like exciting and they had a very good looking young uh, blonde singer. And, uh, And so it happened very quickly that we got a reputation and that we could, uh, play actually a lot of gigs, uh, which uh, we were, all of us, I mean, Isabel and Christophe were still at, uh, at school and uh, Robert, Marc and I were at the university. So we, we, had, we had plenty of time, you know, and uh, so we could uh, devote ourselves to writing songs and play live and we played a lot of concerts it was like quite easy. We even played festivals where they replaced some of the bands that were scheduled to play because those were like, you know, progressive bands, etc. But suddenly they were totally out of fashion and suddenly we were. So we had some interesting collisions playing at festivals in front of an audience who was which which was totally not prepared to accept us, you know, playing the music we were playing, you know, that kind. We we were not playing punk rock, but we were playing like punk pop or something like this, you know, a lot of melodies, but a lot of aggressiveness, etc. And there is an anecdote that is very funny. We played uh, a festival in Flanders on a football field and near to the football field, there was a field with cows. And there was, of course, one or 200 people, you know, in front of stage cheering for us, you know, uh, with punk outfits, etc. But the majority of the crowd did, really didn't like us. So, like in festivals, you know, they went away to have drinks or something. But some of them, and I could see them while playing, they went into the cow area and they started actually to collect cow shit. And I could see them prepare, you know, bombs because they used newspaper. So they had newspaper filled with cow shit and they started throwing it at us. <laughs> and I remember that our reaction was quite arrogant, but, but nice in a way. It was cool anyway and stylish. Um, we decided to uh, to sit down and play covers of some of our favorite um, songs by the Velvet Underground, uh, including Femme Fatale that we, we like to play. And so it suddenly it was very well, like if we, if, if we were we were in our lounge, you know, playing, you know, not noticing the people. And uh, it was a very strange experience. But actually, we could avoid the shit. Uh, but, but I mean, that, and it was like, you know, like watching a film in slow motion. I could see, and then I understood what they had in mind. 
And I realized that would would still be on stage finishing our sets before they could actually throw things at us, and they did. So that that moment, it was like it had suddenly there was maybe a heavy metal band or probably progressive band because we had a quite busy uh, progressive scene in 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 Belgium at that time, but in a mo in a sudden those bands couldn't get a contract and bands like us you know including you know we were actually learning by doing you know mm. we were not skillful as musicians you know uh we were making mistakes but that was totally allowed you know and that was also one of the good things about the punk scene is that you can you could form a band, go on stage, make mistake, and still being embraced, you know? Yes. Being allowed to develop, which is something that didn't happen. You had to be a perfect musician before going on stage, only one year before that. It well, it's interesting, because I've done a couple of interviews with bands who were probably, you know, who just couldn't do any wrong in the early 70s. There was a band called Barclay James Harvest, another one called... Yeah, Tenor, yeah I remember that. And, um, you know, who were part of that canterbury scene and and when we were talking you know i was talking to their lead you know person who was still part of the band or, or the, the original member and and the word punk still kind of you know you could see they were still kind of bitter decades oh. later because it was almost like they you know like you know they brought the album out did the tour brought the album you know they could do anything they wanted and then suddenly it was like they just went okay next album it's like actually don't worry mate you know we're not we're not really that bothered about that. And it's like, yeah, well, I mean, you know. and yeah, I could, and, and I think it was such a shock. It was a bit like, but they can't play their instruments. I mean, uh, they're rubbish. Have you listened to them? You know, they're, yeah. it's a bit like, yeah, it doesn't matter. You know, that that's yeah. what 16 to 18 year olds listen to. You're going to have to wait another few decades for your audience to want to go and see you when they're in their fifties, yeah. I'm afraid. So you'll have to. Um, if you away. have time for a small anecdote, anecdote, Yes. There was a band called Machiavel. They still exist. They're back now. Machiavel. And they had a huge success in Belgium. And they were actually promoted as the Belgian Pink Floyd, uh, which, is, which was great up until the moment when Pink Floyd became like, you know, the quintessence of what was going, was, what was to be rejected, you know, um, both by press, promoters, whatever. The, the new thing was on. And uh, actually, those guys lost a few contracts because of us. And when I say us, it's not only the passengers. We were going to be the names uh, the year after. But also with other bands from the, the new scene in, in Belgium. When there was the 40 years of punk, uh, RTBF, which is like the BBC for Belgium, organized a debate around the phenomenon and I was invited. And uh, so we were all in a studio, except for one guy, very important for Belgian radio, uh, Marc Isaï, and he was the drummer of Machiavel. And of course he was going to say very nasty things about the punk movement and about that time. But can you imagine the guy who actually, he was in the same building, but not in the studio. He asked to be in a separate studio so he could 
in make his interventions in the debate without actually being in the presence of us guys and girls from from it's can you imagine that i mean it it was so silly and all the people the, the technicians and the, the the people doing the program say well that's too silly is like uh, is like uh, 100 meters away in a small studio, but he didn't want to meet you and shake your hand. Wow, that's kind of ah, that's, a that's classic. Well, of course, we laughed about it, but th that's sad because they must really have felt it was so not right for them. But we are really good musicians, and uh, and we know barrier. Yes, well, it well, it well, I suppose what's interesting, just slightly. You know, it's, it's uh, doing this show, I, you know, I realise that everybody, you know, like a lot of bands, okay, not all, but most have a five year narrative, you know, they get together 12 months, you know, rehearsed and having a nice time, you know, having, you know, just being young and fun, getting that single, and like I mentioned, you know, John Peel playing it, and then suddenly that first album, so there's like three years, things are going really well. <laughs> And then, you know, there's the tricky second album. If anybody from the UK tours America, they come back and they normally split up because it finishes them off. And, but what I realised after that five years is that the next group of 16 to 18 year, old, year olds come in and they're almost like, actually, we want our own band. We don't, we don't really care about the Smiths, you know, even though they're brilliant, mm -hmm. but they're kind of three or four years old. We want our own kind of, you know, we want to discover that new band. I think that's the thing that, that a lot of people don't realize and those prog bands probably thought but why aren't the kids liking it it's like yeah but you you know they want to discover a band they don't want to buy the latest triple topographic ocean roger dean amazing posters you know and and you guys all going around in jets they want to they want to go to the clubs you know and think oh I've, I've found this new band they're amazing i'm the only one who knows them you know that's what being young is all about well it was in my day anyway so it's, i mean at that time that happens but it had happened at the at this fantastic speed, you know, I remember in London, but we also had record shop in Belgium when actually people were, were getting records, not knowing anything about the band, you know, opening it. And actually the guys from the record shop listening to it with a, us young people around, you know, discovering it and suddenly, well, what, what is it called? Or yeah. X-ray specs. Oh, that's a cool name, etc. But it happened all the time. I mean, it happened all the time. And every each week in Brussels, we got imports, and we went to discover things. And the same, the same with with and certainly. I mean, in the in, in the in the UK, in a major way, uh, at clubs, you know, because the process was so quick. You form. You didn't have to rehearse for one year. You know. You could very well be on stage after uh, after uh, after two or three months and not having an, enough songs, you know, to do a proper gig. But that's not problem because there would be three bands on the on stage on the same night. And yes, it's well, it that was incredibly exciting. Yes, absolutely. So you have that kind of interesting period, which is that sort of, as we call it, the post-punk world, because punk yeah. quickly looked terrible, you know, like some of the bands jumping on the bandwagon were just like any, you know, like the yeah. 60s, well, like, yeah, yeah there, there was the, oh, I don't know, it, it still frightens you, well, not frightens, it's just that you just realise there's that moment you think, yeah, I think punk's finished, because this band yeah. is just terrible. Um, then post-punk, and you had bands like, you know, Wire, and you had the 
you know, Public Image Limited and Gang of Four, and then band, a band like the Nightingales that came along probably a bit later. But then, mm. you know, during the early 80s, there was that kind of period where you had, you know, Julian Cope and, um, and the Teardrop Explodes and, so, you know, Simple Minds and you 2 started to develop. And it was kind of, yeah, so you were right there in that kind of interest in kind of beginning the kind of the early sort of, I suppose, the seeds that I call indie pop. Mm-hmm. Because in, I, okay, my theory—it's not a great theory, but it's kind of—it's um, I, I put indie pop down between the years of eighty-three to eighty-seven because that's mm-hmm. the years of the Smiths, and there was definitely something like that moment the Smiths appeared. There was like, okay, this is definitely something, and that, and then there was the finishing, and then in the UK, I mean, it's, it was like they finished, ecstasy came along. Suddenly, there was like a new yeah. group of people who wanted to dance. You know, they wanted the sort of Stone Roses. Happy Mondays, Primal Scream, they wanted to, you know, the club scene changed quite a lot. And I think a lot of those bands like the June Brides, the Wolfhounds, Yeah, Yeah, No, all those kind of, you know, we've got a fuzz box and we're going to use it. And, and you know, they, they'd all kind of thought, actually, we've been doing this for five years. We've made mm. no money. We also really hate each other. Let's face it. Let's break up. Yeah. And that was that was it. So, but you're there kind of. Uh-huh. Very yeah, the, the process, the, I would describe the process uh, of what happened with us uh, at that time. So we played a lot in uh, 1978. And um, we also listened to bands like television, for instance. Television makes you feel that it wouldn't be a bad thing if you could play better <laughs> and actually <laughs> master the instruments, etc and do some more ambitious stuff. And then we heard Magazine. Magazine was quite an influence in us wanting to have keyboards, which meant that we had to have a new drummer and that our drummer, who actually was a very good piano player, could go on to the keyboards. And then it was there was me wishing to front the, the, the band and sing. Uh, more because I mean we were duetting uh, Isabel and I and so that's how the names happened and then quickly we had a totally new material to play and at that moment uh, and we were still hot you know in terms of press and, and audience interest also we got a lot of uh, you know we could open for a lot of important bands of that time uh, from XTC to magazines, for, magazine, for instance, uh, Echo and the Bunnymen and things like that, which was very instrumental uh, for us in terms of, you know, meet interesting people, uh, getting encouraged by some of them, but also playing for very big audiences, you know, like three, four thousand people in a, in a theater, in a venue. And uh, and that was that experience was absolutely absolutely great, and and the success was there. So we got confidence enough to say, okay, let's get real, let's cut uh, an extended play, let's make our first um, EP, and that we did uh, in '79. The EP is called Spectators of Life. It was released as a single self-produced, but it was taken on by uh, WEA, Warner Electra Atlantic, which was a major company. Mm. They released it in the Benelux, 
and then it was released on 12-inch version by celluloid, uh, rather trendy um, label in France. So, and that's how it happened. And it's with that EP uh, that we got uh, serious about finding a record label. And uh, we were rather shy and uh, not that ambitious. And I mean, our manager at the time, who later became my wife, and she's in the other room uh, at this moment uh, with the kids. And she told us, Belgium is too small. You have to go to, 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 to the UK and you have to go to one of the labels you feel good about and admire. You, you have to dare that. What can you lose in the process? So we decided that there were two labels that really appealed to us. One, of course, was Factory Records. The other one was uh, Fiction. Uh, and uh, and so, not only because of The Cure, because The Cure was, of course, the, the leading band, but also because we loved uh, another band on, on, on fiction records were called The Passions. Oh, yes. Later on, we, we, we were very happy. I think it was in 1997, we recorded our cover version of I'm in Love with the German Film Star, which is one of my favorite songs ever. Yes. So it, it, was very, it was very cool and we loved them. So we, for fiction, we just, we did send the EP, you know, to Chris Parry. And for Factory, we had a lot of friends involved at Le Plancat, the, the, which was a very uh, interesting place. It was a little bit, you know, like Andy Warhol, Warhol's Factory without Andy Warhol. Yes. It was an old, you know, um, uh, it, it was an old mill, actually. Um, they, 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 would, they were actually uh, making sugar there, la raffinerie, the refinery for, for sugar, in, in, uh, near the canal, a very, very industrious, at that time, uh, region in, in Brussels, area in Brussels. And that empty, you know, uh, uh, industrial place were turned into a very hip, place where artists could gather and do things. Uh, not only bands um, doing concerts, but also a lot of people involved in visual arts, in painting, there was exhib exhibitions. Of course, there was a bar. Uh, you always have to have a bar if yes. you want to, uh, to hang around. And so that was the place, not only to be, it was the place to play. It was an alternative, major alternative place and of course, it's where Joy Division gave the the only the two only concerts in Belgium were there, and, and, that, uh, and that was where they recorded. Was that the live album, wasn't it? Uh, that I can't remember. The, I, I think there was record. There were recordings, but was it official recording? I don't. I, can't, I don't know. I, I think I, I seem to remember something appeared on one of those kind of. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they released stuff. Uh, and all the second stuff. concert was certainly uh, recorded properly, and uh, and so we went at the first concert. We were just like uh, you know, uh, watching the band, and 
And on the second concert, we were ready with our EP. So we went to, sell, to see, we were introduced to Rob Breton, uh, Joy Division's manager. And uh, we went to see him and uh, we gave him the EP. I said, well, we are the names. Uh, probably you didn't hear about us. He didn't hear about us before. <laughs> but I mean, people around him, you know, said, oh, yeah, 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 they're good, they're good. Well, anyway, we gave him the, the record and <laughs> we went uh, to have a drink uh, after the concert. And he said, yeah, okay, uh, I will bring it back to, to Manchester tomorrow. And uh, also, well, that record will never hit Manchester, you know, without being broken because he had an attaché case, you know, full of things or whatever. There were even apples uh, in it, a flask, you know, say, well, the record will be broken. We would have, we, we should have thought about, you know, having a box or whatever. And anyway, you will not remember because of the state he was in when we talked. So <laughs> we were like, say, well, yeah, well, it's, yeah, well. Less than one week after that, our manager, uh, a, a phone number was on the, the sleeve, you know. She got a call uh, and it, she was living with her parents and so we didn't, I wasn't there. And uh, she, couldn't understand almost anything. And she called me and said, well, please call this number because someone talked to me with a, in English with a heavy accent. And I have the feeling that it's someone from Factory Records. <laughs> so I called Rob uh, Gretton. And, uh, and of course, the accent was there. Uh, Rob Gretton in a, in a more dynamic state and he said it was very simple he said well martin loves you guys um are you is would it be possible for you to uh to come and uh and make and record a single uh for us so i said well uh, well i was impressed i mean i probably there was a uh, silent moment before I could actually answer because I was both surprised and uh, really pleased. Well, pleased is a weak word. And I say, yes, certainly, but I mean, how can we do that? Uh, should we write? A... No, 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 there is no problem. A certain ratio is coming to play Brussels at the Plancard, Planquet, uh, in, I think, two weeks or three weeks. And Tony Wilson will be there and you will meet him. And we, you, you will. And in the meantime, we will propose dates, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Okay. And so, so a certain ratio came to play, and we met Tony Wilson, and we shook hands, which was the way uh, deals were made at factories, and it's one of the reasons where they, why they sued, they they sued each other's ass a few years later. Um, because a lot of things were not written. It was like, this is the contract. But I mean, it was the contract when we showed up for, to, for, for recording Night Shift, and I wish I could speak your language, or first session. Uh, the studio was there. The hotel was there, very nice. Everything was totally prepared, set, paid for. It was great. It was great. So we didn't need a proper contract. Maybe if we wanted, if we were more into money, we should have the written yeah. contract. But I mean, that's how it happened. It, it was very quick, very quick. And I remember 
two days before meeting Tony Wilson in Brussels, I got a letter from Fiction Records. And Mr. Parry was actually enthusiastic and wanted me to come to London and have him listen to the new songs. Uh, and then there was a quick decision to make, well, should we postpone our decision? Because fiction, well, it's, it's all the other favorite label. But I mean, I stopped the discussion very quickly saying, well, no, first, we prefer the, the, the politics of factory. They're more like, you know, they seem to be more than a record label, than just a record label. And uh, and so well, and we and also they are trusting us. Let's trust them. So we decide. I wrote a very polite letter back to Fiction, saying, "Yeah, that's, that's very cool, but I mean, we are going to work with Factory Record." And then what I didn't realize, if is that if we were to opt for Fiction, probably we wouldn't be facing each other and having this interview. Because, because it's because of factory records and it's because of their legacy that we are still allowed you know, to exist in a public way and play uh, concerts all around Europe. You know? And if we were on fiction, maybe we would achieve more success you know, in the first place. But certainly we wouldn't be around like, you know, uh, being part of that heritage. Yes, it's very strong. So I mean, so it was a good move to stick with Factory Records. Definitely. Yes, interesting. And also, there was Martin Annett, and that was so attractive. Well, quite. He is a legend. But did um, with that, does that mean that you then keep ownership of your music? Because there was because most bands that you know the indie bands, they all kind of go, we don't really own the music, and that's always a bit of a like, oh, okay, sorry, let's 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 not dwell on that point but does that mean with factory that you know when all said and done you just like here's your master tape there was no that never proposed uh, a publishing contract never which later on when we recorded for factory benelux and for les disques du crépuscule there were publishing contracts so all the songs i recorded at that time are actually now they are published, the, you know how it goes with, a, with publishing rights. The songs were owned by Les Bruits Essentiels, which is uh, the company formed by Les, the people from Factory Benelux and the Disque du Crépuscule, same people. But years after that, I realized that all the songs have been transferred to Sony Music you know, and later on to another major, you know, in, which of course never knew that they had the rights to those songs, but it was the package, you know, they, they sold it. They sold it with, with more interesting stuff. So interestingly enough, and that surprised a lot of people, the only two songs that I am totally owner of are Night Shift and I Wish I Could Speak Your Language, the two that are on Fact 29, the single we recorded for Factory Records, because they never thought of about a publishing contract. So I'm sole owner of my rights for those two songs only. The other ones are shared, shared with the publisher. 
<clears throat> so does that mean though that because I know I did an interview with a, a member of um, or two of them. I mean, I can do whatever I want, but I mean the rights, a part of the rights are going to those publishing companies. Yes. Uh, but I didn't, oh yeah, because the two, yeah, I did an interview with two of the members of Bauhaus, not together, separately, and they said uh -huh. that the, the, they, they have the rights to Bela Lugosi, that was the only, they, they kind of kept that, which uh -huh. was like such a lucky move, because I think that kind of keeps them, well, yeah. probably keep them in, you know, fantastic kind of, uh, yeah, wealth, but you yeah. know, I expect over the years it's been quite handy. Yeah. As uh, so, did that, does that mean that you also find that those two singles give you more royalty checks than the others, or does it not work like that? Yeah, obviously, Night Shift is a uh, is it's not well. We have two songs that are you know known even by people who who don't know who played those songs. You know, songs that people know without for. Sometimes without knowing it's the names, uh, and it's Night Shift, of course, because that was uh, our first single on, on Factory Records. It was a very nice uh, cover art, sleeve art by Peter Saville. And also it became single of the week, so, and it had a success and it became a collector. And it's on each and every new compilation uh, at Factory Records. It's even on some albums with the best of Martin Annette, you know. So that song is quite known even by people who the fuck are the names. Oh, they play Night Chief. Oh, yes, okay. Yes. And the other one is Calcutta, which was quite a hit here in Belgium. And uh, and realize that because sometimes we are playing for audience audiences that certainly are not basically made by fans, you know, out of fans of us, uh, in festivals, for instance, but every, each time the intro of that song, song makes itself heard, people are cheering, yeah. So, I mean, those are the two songs that are actually known outside of, you know, the fan or fandom. Um, Calcutta and uh, so, Obviously, in Belgium, Calcutta is in a lot of new wave post-punk compilations, so I'm getting uh, some money, not a lot, but some money out of it. And of course, Night Shift. Yes, absolutely. And then, I mean, one of the great things, and you, you managed to tick a lot of these boxes, you know, you signed for a, you know, an indie, indie label, you work with Martin Hannett. What studio did you go to, by, by, um, by the way? That was one of the big shocks, happy shocks in my life, because uh, I just heard, you know, you're going to record at Strawberry Studios. It's a very nice studio. It's in Stockport. Um, and Martin uh, likes to, well, actually, Factory Records were in residence there. You know, they, these, I don't know if they owned, they didn't own the place on, but I mean, they were on a permanent basis there. And, um, Everybody recorded there, uh, but I didn't say, well, what is Strawberry uh, Studio? And I, th there was no internet that I could check, you know, now I could see to directly, I could visit the studio, you know, yes, uh, no, yeah. visit before going there, but I didn't know. And when we came into the studio, in the reception room, just behind the counter, 
there were platinum records of I'm Not In Love, 10cc. Oh, classic. It was 10cc studio. I mean, they created it. They created it. And they recorded that song, which I did remember being a youngster, you know, uh, going at part at, you know, uh, uh, parties, you know, uh, with friends uh, of school. And that was the song I was like, I was not very lucky with girls, but I was like dreaming to, you know, seduce one girl while dancing on I'm not in love. So That's it a- was like in, in realizing that I was going to, sorry, I was going to record songs in the same studio that those guys created that was amazing and i mean yeah so just hold that that thought because you probably you probably excited you get say well see you know it's because um, have you come across this book um leave the capital no because it's done by paul paul handley who was the uh the drummer and it's a it's a history of um, Manchester, and it talks a lot about uh, 10CC because they actually invested quite a lot into the the Manchester music scene, including. In, in the... yeah. I will I will get uh, my hand on that book if it's still in circulation. Yes, it's still look. You can see I'm not in love. You see, it's a ma- it's, they're a major player in the sort of the scene. Oh, that's, that's great. I so um, do do check that out. It's, oh, I will. It's um, it it only came out a few years ago, so uh, there you go. So look, so then, as I said, you did your factory records, Martin Hannett, also Strawberry Studios, but also a John Peel session as well, which must have been really exciting. That was before. That was when we were on our way to uh, Manchester to record the album, to record Swimming, again at Strawberry Studios, again with Martin. Because, I mean, we worked with Martin uh, much longer than we worked actually for Factory Records. He stayed with us uh, up until uh, our last single at that time. So we worked three years with Martin and he, we had a really very great rapport, you know, uh, relationship uh, with him. And uh, it's on our way. So it was, uh, I think, two days before getting to Manchester and start on recording the album uh, that we stopped at Maida Vale and uh, we had this experience of well being on the John Peel show was something amazing not for all members of the band because but for Mark and I we were big fans and we were listening to, to John Peel and it was like wow being, you know, alone in a sort of a hall of fame, you know, uh, it was John Peel. And, and, and also we heard that he actually uh, liked us. And, 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 uh, and so it, it was, it was, it was, it was something. Yes. So it was very interesting as an experience because it was the first um, digital uh, mixing desk that I ever saw it was not totally digital but there were digital elements in it they could block a lot of things without having to n- n- write down the levels and things like that or use a pencil you know to the, like we did uh, at, at strawberries to to raise or you know to lower some levels simultaneously it was really professional uh, 
equipment. And those guys, those two guys who were recording us were amazingly friendly and they were amazingly BBC, meaning they were, you know, like wearing a tie and a sweatshirt, you know, uh, over their shirt and the tie, you know, like basically uh, a civil servant will be, you know, uh, working. And that it was the same at RTBF in, uh, on, 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 on our uh, radio and television. In, and, but they were totally open for that kind of music. But watching them, you say, well, those guys, they probably only used to, uh, you know, uh, pop, very conservative pop music or, you know, very, uh, uh, well, you know, uh, Johnny Mattis, you know, rather than the Sex Pistols. But I mean, because they didn't look like they were going to give us the attention, the talent, and also second, some wild ideas. And uh, it was a very, very nice experience. It was at night. It was, uh, yeah, it was great. And yes. uh, it, I was very happy when finally, uh, James Nice uh, managed to be able to actually release those uh, peel sessions as a bonus on one of the many re-releases of uh, swimming yeah. uh, because he wanted to do it earlier but the money uh, the money asked by the bbc was huge you know it was very we could we could finance a to totally new album you know 10 or 12 songs for the money they were asking to release those for those uh, those those four post songs so uh no it was totally a great experience and you know going do down the, the the corridors there at the bbc and having those <laughs> there was uh, a corridor when you had they had a, a symphony orchestra in, in at that time in residence there and there were all the you know, the the base, the, the huge boxes for the bases. And you know, you were you were walking down that 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 corridor and it looked like statues, you know, uh watching, you know, and and, and saying to you, well, you think you're smart. We have been here for for centuries. <laughs> <laughs> no, it was it was great, it was great. And also, I mean, uh, when because we of course listened. When he, uh, when John Peel actually introduced the songs, uh, he was very supportive, and it 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 was uh, there were some people like that, or so in the rhythm press, someone like Paul Morley, for instance. They, they were sometimes instrumental, giving us, you know, uh, relaying what we were doing to a wider audience because there were people, very influential people. But it was it was very cool. It was very cool. Yes, it was very relaxed. But then, quite soon after that, I mean, the band does the John Peel session, does the album, and then and then it's not that long before you you know you decide to call it a day. Really? No, 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 no. The, the, we did a lot of things. Uh, uh, we did a lot of things. Uh, other things. I mean, we recorded 
uh, in Belgium at IPCs, we recorded the, the, another EP, Calcutta, at IPC Studio, which is which became one of the most important uh, studios in um, in Europe, and we were among the very first to be uh, allowed to work there. That was very great. Uh, we recorded something between five and, and seven songs for the different compilation uh, projects that uh, collective efforts that uh, both Factory Benelux and certainly Les Disques du Crépuscule did organize. Um, Ghost, of the Christ Ghost of Christmas Past, The Fruit of the Original Sin, the very recently and brilliantly re-released uh, from Brussels with Love. And, uh, and then we had the last uh, session in Brussels with Martin. Martin came to Brussels uh, to record The Astronaut, which would be our last uh, recording session of that era. And, uh, and that happened in, we, we, we stopped we started working for Factory Records, Factory Benelux and Disco du Crépuscule in 1980, and we stopped the end of 1983. So there were things happened uh, during that time. So it, yeah, it was like quick, but it was not that quick. Yes. Um, and, and it happened in a very, well, it's, and, and it was fantastic to have Martin in Brussels, you know, and, uh, and the, the, and see that the magic could could last, you know, in a in a lesser studio. Even if it was a good studio, it was not the the strawberry. And it and it that that last session was certainly the most relaxed that we had with Martin because, like always, he was bursting with ideas. But I think that we were at the point in our relationship where he was. Um, less you know adamant about say well this is the idea this is my idea you know because martin was very hands on as a producer he was uh, brilliant uh, to a uh, fantastic extent he was always providing with new ideas he was open to other ideas but the final touch was always is you know it was i am the pro i am producing the stuff it may be your songs, but I am produced. We never clashed because I was just happy, you know, to give my songs to Martin Hannett. And in more cases than, than the, 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 the contrary, he made it, them sound uh, fantastic. So, but then on that last session, it was like, it was like more collaborative in terms of, uh, even in terms of mixing uh, ideas. Actually, we did finish the mix together because on both Night Shift um, session and on Swimming on the album, uh, Martin actually did the pre-mixes with us, but he finished the job by himself. We were back in Belgium and then we got, you know, the result, the, 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 the final product we got from him. So, and so it was, it was like, yeah, it, it it was like, you know, the a circle, finishing the circle, and then we stopped not because we were not uh, enthusiastic uh, about making music, 
together anymore. It was just a matter that we finished our studies and that we were facing the harsh reality of the real world. Yes. <laughs> meaning, find yourself a honest, an honest job. And if you can't, find a dishonest job, but find a bloody job. <laughs> <laughs> so, so we did. So we did. And, uh, and, and then it stopped for a few years and then it became alive again in the 90s and then it became again it was it was uh we were still friends but we were not making music uh together again and then uh it was in the mid uh it was in uh i think yeah it was 15 years ago 15 years ago uh i wanted to uh i invited the guys you know it was a birthday and I invited the guy, say, well, we're going to uh, just give a concert for that. A few dozen friends of mine. And then, um, and then we realized how much we missed it. And, uh, and that I have to tell you, we gave that, that concert. We got good response, but I mean, they were friends. So obviously they would respond well, but the word, got around that the names were playing again and then we got a phone call from uh, Frédéric Coton and uh, is the guy who did promote organize and promote the two factory nights that happened in uh, Brussels in 2007 and 2009 and he said well I'm planning a factory night for uh, October or November yeah, it was the beginning of the year, and I will not do it without the names. So are you in? And so I said, certainly, we will play there, certainly. So I, mean, I, I And then I let the other ones say, well, guys, now we have to get serious and, and work because we have a bloody concert at Planca in a few months. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't even ask them. <laughs> I said, yes. So, I mean, if that proposal by Frédéric didn't come about, we could very well just have played for fun, you know? And then at this, that, at this factory night, there were uh, 1,300 people coming from all over Europe. It was so crowded that the, the firemen, you know, were you know, anxious about the risk. And, um, and the success was, well, every band was great that night but we were two and not in a second, but in the following week, people were contacting us. Well, could you come and play in Italy? Could you come and play in Germany? And then, well, it's, it's how it started again. Uh, we were fortunate, you know, that of meeting people, you know, who could actually uh, create the circumstances where we could say, yes, let's do it. But it was not like, you know, we were desperate to start again and give concerts. We welcomed a situation. Yes. So we are still welcoming it. Yeah. <laughs> so what's the difference between you recorded your Monsters Next Door to the Stranger Than You album? You know, because there was obviously a quite a long period of time between your Swimming album of 82. Oh, yes. We, so we did an album in 1997. But, I mean, in very stupid way, uh, I made a totally wrong 
decision, which was at that time, I was really against all those bands that were, you know, reuniting and, you know, trying to, uh, to uh, bring the fire back and uh, to go to play them the, the greatest hits to, uh, to an aging, aging crowd. Um, so I said, well, let's do this album, but let's take another name. <laughs> let's not do it as the names. So it's a names album, but under uh, the, it's available everywhere on the, on the internet and also in, in, um, in a real uh, hard um, copy that CD. Um, and it's, it's called Night Vision and it's by a band called Jazz, but Jazz is us. It's exactly the same four musicians that you can hear on swimming. And, um, but, and that was a big mistake. And uh, and then we released it, and then I became a father for the first time, and I was totally uh, overwhelmed. So organizing concerts was not really uh, the point for a few months. I was busy being a dad, and uh, and so the project collapsed again. You know, also we didn't have a proper label. We did it ourselves. We think, yeah, that's very brave. That's the right way to do it. It was not the right way to do it. I mean, <laughs> the album exists, everybody. But now you know about it. Yes. <laughs> A few people know about it, but it's not that known. Um, so there was this one in the interval. Then after we started again and played on stage, when we played the factory night, we already had 10 songs, you know, because... I'm quite productive in terms of writing songs and the band is quite fast about getting them, you know, uh, uh, played and, uh, and, uh, and uh, do them justice. So we were, uh, we had a lot of songs, so we decided to, um, to do, uh, to make a new album. And that album was released, we were approached by a French, label called straight straight line with the eight yes straight line very friendly people very enthusiastic uh, very much into post-punk uh, music so we said yes and we had the album with them and then uh, and then we had later on there was a, a lot of re-releases done by our friend uh, James Nice, uh, first on LTM, is on his, his label, and then afterwards James uh, got the rights uh, of old stuff on Factory Benelux and Les Disques du Crépuscule, and from that point on, he has been the force, you know, behind the band, uh, releasing new stuff. So we, uh, from that point, moment on, we were not anymore on straight line it was a it was a, a deal only on one album and now we are working on a permanent base base for either the disque du, du crépuscule when it's re-releases of material from the disque du crépuscule and for the passengers because we had two singles on the disque du crépuscule new singles uh, two two years ago but any new stuff by the names is on factory banners now 
Fantastic. That is brilliant. Now, just as we live in this such a strange time, yeah. I mean, as a creative artist, is this kind of, have you sort of been, how, how has it been? Has it been a struggle? Has it been easy? I mean, just kind of wanting to, because obviously, you know, you've got plans to do more stuff. Yeah, I mean, the only thing that I, well, I miss, you know, being with, I miss a lot of things, obviously. You know, uh, I can't see my friends like, a, well, now what I'm doing, uh, I have what I call walk and talk, uh, walks and talks. Uh, I mean, I'm meeting people outside, you know. Yes. Then we have walks in the forest or in a park or whatever, and we can share, you know, comments about things and experiences because we can't, we are not allowed to, to, be, uh, to be inside with more than one person except for your, well, and sometimes we have two, but I mean, that I'm missing, but I, and I'm missing a lot of things. I'm missing, I miss uh, going to see concerts, uh, films, whatever. I'm missing, I miss traveling, but musically, to answer your question, what I'm missing a lot are the concerts, because there were a lot of concerts. Well, not a lot, because we're not playing a lot, but there was a series of concerts that I was really looking forward to and that were canceled. And now it's going to be almost our last concert. We played when COVID was already around. We even had hesitations about to do that concert or not. And uh, because the epidemic was, pandemic was starting here in Belgium, people were afraid. Some people didn't come to the concert. And uh, I know them because they, they noticed me they, that they, would, they wouldn't come because of COVID. But we did that concert. And I'm very happy that we did because nobody was, was ill afterwards. Nobody got sick. And it was a great concert. And it's like we stole it away from COVID, you know. <laughs> that concert we could do and and everybody uh, everybody remembers it like yeah yeah you were right doing so we did it after that and it was beginning of march it was uh, beginning of march last year and uh, so i'm missing the not everybody in the band is that stage enthusiastic but some of us prefer the work in studio i definitely prefer the stage i mean it's uh, wow to me, it's an experience that is totally unmatchable. And, uh, and so that I'm missing a lot. Otherwise, I'm a strong believer of bad times bring good songs. Uh, there was a, once I had, uh, I had a, a lot of songs on, on uh, Stranger Than You. For instance, uh, there is a long sort of travelogue song uh, called Die Mauer is No More uh, about Berlin. Uh, there is uh, My Angel of Death. There are four or five songs that were actually written at a moment when I was so bad that I felt I didn't, when I was taking the, the, the underground of the train, that I shouldn't go, you know, in, in front too close to the to the rails, you know, because I could be tempted to to jump. So there were really very really dark times for me. And uh, I remember a friend telling me, 
about depression because it was depression. And he said, well, do you know what uh, Bob Dylan said? Uh, when you really feel bad, when you got depressed, don't try to fight it. Just sing. Let, let yourself sing. You will hit the, bot the bottom and you will bounce back to uh, um, up. And if you're lucky on the way, you will have a few very good songs. <laughs> I mean, it's exactly, I mean, he, he took that from his own experience. I mean, his best album, well, except on the, from the classics of the 60s, but his best uh, maturity album is Blood on the Tracks, which is an amazing record. Very depressing, but amazing. The songs are beautiful, so sad, so true. And so he spoke from experience. And I can now speak from experience. With this, there are, it's, it's up and down, you know. Uh, it's like we open restaurants, we close restaurants. There, was more, there are moments when I say, well, yeah, it's going to be, well, in, a three, in three months we can rehearse, in six months we can play, uh, everything will be fine. And then, you know, one week after that, I say, well, the COVID will be stronger than the vaccine, whatever. You know, it's it's up and down, up and down, up and down. But I sort of used it to uh, to write songs uh, without any constraint. And interestingly enough, the the song they are not sad songs. They are more like angry songs or songs about difficult subject that I'd never think I would tackle before. So I have, well, it will be for you and for other people uh, listening to them when they will be released and hopefully they will uh, to tell me if they are good or not, but I feel that it's very strong stuff. And, uh, and I'm not sure that those songs would exist without, you know, this dark, uh, period without the frustrations, without the fact that I want to go out and I sometimes I can't. Um, I think it reflects, and I think that um, it should be that way. You should pick on whatever happens to you. Uh, you know, uh, maybe uh, very uh, beautiful and optimistic stuff like having kids, for instance, it influenced some of the songs I wrote. But uh, sad stuff and uh, and uh, frustration can also bring. Uh, it's and probably it's also a little therapeutic, you know, writing songs. And uh, but I'm writing like all the time, and I'm writing a lot of texts which I never did before. My way of writing songs, if you want to, very I told that to very few people. My, way, my usual way of writing songs from the beginning on, even when, when I was 15, was find a title that sounds good, then find the melody, and then find the lyrics, create the lyrics to match those two, uh, those two elements. And the first time I did otherwise was on uh, for Stranger Than You after that depressive depression period, when I started actually writing text. So it became lyrics. It wasn't lyrics at the time, just to write, 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 write. 
and then shaping the songs around the lyrics, which is something I never did before Stranger Than You. And now I'm doing it like always. So it's, it's starting with, with, the, with the lyrics. It's starting with the lyrics and it leads me to open up the structure of the songs, which are certainly now more open and more free. And if I have lyrics that I really love and that needs to be uh, to be in the song, I will change the structure, you know. I will create a space which is not a verse, not a chorus, not a break, not whatever, not a bridge. I will find something just to fit them in. And that's new to me. So it, everything which is new is exciting. And so it's exciting. Now, if I can't play those songs with the band uh, in the next uh, four or five months, I will probably be less, you know, smiling about it. <laughs> but hopefully I will. Hopefully. Yes. Well, you know, I turned, I turned 65. So officially in Belgium, in about two or three months, I should get the vaccine. So uh, oh. after that moment, you know, even if there is still, you know, like 10% or 15% risk, I will not give a shit and I will start back, you know, uh, whatever I want to do. Yes. And did you ever, you know, as, as a sort of a lyric writer, did you ever sort of work, you know, because there was always these things about William Burroughs being this kind of great influence on so many writers like Kurt Cobain, David Bowie, you know, mm -hmm. Bob Dylan, Mick Jagger, you know, people, you know, the, the idea of the cut up, you know, to create stories do you ever work like that or do you have a particular narrative when you're putting together a song i didn't i didn't well first of all it was we i worked by sound rather than meaning and some of the songs that are on swimming for instance uh it took time for me to realize where they were coming from there was still mystery i had to interpret them myself because sometimes uh, Martin or someone else would ask me, what do you mean by saying this? Or where does this idea come? I bloody couldn't answer. Only that the words came and I wrote them down. And if they fit, you know, the feeling and the, the sounds, it was cool. And then I realized that some of, some of the songs were thematic, of course, but most of them were, were not. And what I did never do, my favorite songwriter is Lou Reed. Uh, he's my, definitely my, and, and he's, and that's probably, I was so in awe uh, with him that I, for a long, 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 long time, I didn't write any narrative songs, you know, songs with an anecdote, songs about people, doing things, etc. And now I'm, I love doing that. But it took me years, you know, to say, well, maybe I also have the right to write songs like he did, you know, uh, capture a moment, you know, uh, yes. take a picture of people around you, uh, tell a story involving someone who will recognize herself or himself, even if other people don't know. I didn't do that. I didn't do that at all. And now I'm doing that. I, I, I must say, and Mark is uh, my guitar, guitarist, is sharing that feeling. 
when we started again, uh, like 15 years ago, the feelings we got and the satisfaction we got by doing it was way, way, way uh, greater than when we were kids, when we were young. And it, it felt strange because we could go to play to places in places where we didn't play before, festivals that we didn't play before. Uh, a lot of young people coming to our gigs, which is something that I also really like because when I went uh, to London with Mark, especially when, uh, when magazine uh, reunited and played uh, two concerts, we were there, but I mean, everybody was our age, you know, or maybe five years younger. And there were guys. And so I'm sort of proud that when we go to play someone, there are a lot of girls and a lot of younger people. I <laughs> but younger people, which is, which is cool. But we realized that we could do things better than we did at that time. And that our enjoyment, our joy doing it, the fulfillment uh, we felt was really something to uh, to love, you know. At that time, but it's the thing with youth, you know. At that time, for us, it was just normal, you know, to go to Manchester and then and, and do a, and then oh, John Peel show, yes, John Peel show. So we were like bouncing from one place to another. And it seemed just like logical and say, what's next? Oh, but someone offered us to do a, a concert at, at Le Bain Douche in Paris. I say, oh, yeah, that's cool. Let's go. And so it just happened. It's not, I think that, and it's, that's one of the things about youth, which is great, is that you don't stop to reflect about what you're doing. You just do it. Yes. And now, and now sometimes I was on stage and that's an intimate thought that I will share with you. Um, I remember being on tour in Italy and being on stage and having such, uh, you know, a reaction from the audience and feeding on that. And it was uh, warm and, and, and sweaty and whatever. It felt a little like sex, you know, and I felt myself, I, and I just after going off stage, I say, Mark, it's amazing. I suddenly realized what it would be to make love for the first time, but having lived all the experience that you live through the years. So, of course, it's impossible. But, you know, it was again like a first time, except I was emotionally equipped to really enjoy it to the fullest, which certainly I wasn't when I was 20 years old. So yeah. it's, 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 it's really, and, and it led me to, uh, I, had, I reflected a lot on, of, of that. What would happen if we could revisit, you know, emotions that we live through when, when we are young, bringing the, the, the baggage, you know, some of the baggage. Of course, it's impossible. 
it's tricky. No, look, interesting. One of those yeah. questions, which is a bit tedious, but I keep asking it. If you could have said something to a, you know, um, um, an 18 or a 16 or 18 year old self with all the wisdom that you've had over the decades, I wonder if there was, there was a, a couple of bullet points that you'd say, yes, there is, a, there is something I've just wanted to say to that person. In what, in what, uh, on, on, on what ground, I mean, on what domain, in what domain, in a specific domain or about music, about uh, Well, I suppose, I suppose it would be music, but it could be life, because sometimes, you know, to be honest, you know, as, as an example, some people have said, you know, oh, I would have just told myself to practice more because I didn't practice enough or, or to have enjoyed it more. That's another classic cliche, you know, because we didn't really enjoy it. We were all a bit too serious and angsty. Just something that you wished you'd told or, you know, to be honest, get better advice or get a better manager. Um, was the other ones that are classic, don't take so many drugs. But, you know, I just wondered if there was something that you would have just said, actually, there is this, this is the sort of, these are the kind of key things I would have just tell anybody, include myself back then, you know, from what you've experienced over the last four decades? Yeah, well, what I would, I, I would certainly put the accent of the live today thing. I mean, uh, you don't live by plans, you know, uh, uh, you live by doing things. So one of the things I would probably not advice but share is the fact that if something interesting comes around like seize it you know don't i know it's difficult for some people but don't put yourself in your mind uh in your mindset a sort of big plan no no i shouldn't do this i shouldn't do that um probably you will regret not having done it. So, um, so that I would probably say, it's not only seize the day, it's uh, seize the opportunity uh, is, well, if you're not gifted at that, uh, learn the importance of doing things with people, which I think is a key process. I realized that in, in, in my whole life, I always, because I shot some documentaries, I had some radio and television programs. All my best experiences were with groups, you know, either be a band, you know, or a film crew or a radio. It's, it's, it's interacting with other people and being open to them. It's, I think, another key thing. And the last thing would be Don't be sad if you lose interest in something once you've done it. <laughs> it's something, but for, for a long time, I thought that it was a handicap, you know, there's something that was wrong with me, that the moment a record was out, it was for the other people say, well, did you see the review? Or uh, did, 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 I heard someone say that it played on, on that. It was, well, yeah, now let's do something else. It, it, it was, and, and for a long time I say, well, people seem to enjoy, they uh, say, oh, this album is great, or this concert was great. But 
I was always turning myself to the next thing and I'm still doing it, you know. It's a lesson from my late uh, mother. I mean, she died two, two years ago at 90, at the age of 90 and in great shape. She was fantastic almost up until the end. And uh, she, she, she was very, very busy with a lot of things, you know, seeing friends going to, uh, well, friends, a lot of their friends died on the way, but there were still four or five friends that she, see, she saw like uh, every week and going to see concerts, classical concerts, going to the movies. She got to the movie three or four times a week up until the, the year before she died. And she had an agenda full of projects, full of, you know, uh, uh, on that day, I'm going to see this orchestra, that place, on that day, I have this opera, etc. And people say, well, I mean, you, you're 88, you're 89, and, and you have that agenda for next year with a lot of things and a, and a, a travel to a city, you know, etc. And so, yeah, then, and I hope when I die, there will be full, it will be full of pages of things that I would never do, that I will never do. And uh, I'm following her footsteps in that. You know, I will never reduce, for instance, my rhythm of doing things. Well, it had to be COVID to reduce it. Otherwise, I'm, um, I'm a strong believer of uh, keeping busy with projects. And, um, and, and because the things that you, the, the things you, it's, it might be, it might be a way to, uh, to negate death. You know, it's, it could be a way, well, if I have to be next year at that festival, well, I can't bloody die before, you know, it's like, I think that it works to a certain extent. Uh, for instance, it is known among, among medical people, and I know a few of them, that some people with cancer and with, you know, terminal phase, and then come the bloody World Cup soccer, you know? And some of them are actually holding on. They live like two or three months you know, more than that what was scheduled, say, well, the, the most would be three months and then it becomes six months. And after the World Cup, they die. So it's like, it's like you know, I have, to, I have to be there to witness it. I have to, and I, I, I believe, I, I'm, I, I be, I'm a believer in, in that. So I will always be making plans. Yeah, it's a good point. No, I would definitely. <laughs> and, and probably people will have to come and take me to get me out of stage at a certain moment. <laughs> yes, I know. This is, yeah, I know. That's quite interesting. I know. Keep playing. Yes, keep making plans and have some, something you've got to live for. That's a good one. But look, well, thank you ever so much for your time. Just well, actually, just, I was going to say, how, just to make sure, how do you pronounce your name? Michel Sordinia. What you see that, Louis d'Anvers, it's my writing name. Right. My writing name, I didn't want to, uh, 
to, uh, I, I didn't want to have two lives, but I didn't want to mix the music side. Michel Sordina is my real name. Yes. Michel Sordina is my real name. Uh, Louis is my second uh, name. And uh, Danvers, it comes from uh, a film with one of my heroes on film, which uh, and of course you know him, Peter Sellers. Oh yes. Uh, I'm a big fan of Peter Sellers and when he died, uh, I went to see an old movie of him, of his at the Cinematheque. It's called A Girl in My Soup and he's playing critic and I was trying to find a pseudonym, you know, a writing name and he played, but the food critic. <laughs> but I really enjoyed the, the character and I say, well, Danvers, Danvers, yeah, Danvers. It's it sounds nice in English. It's Danvers. It sounds nice in French. It goes with Louis, Louis Danvers, Louis Danvers. And every each time that someone asks me to explain about my writing name, I will be able to talk about Peter Sellers. Yes, I know. and again he, I did it. <laughs> I know. Yes, well, he he's still very yes. He was part of my childhood. Those films that we used to watch. So um, yes. Yeah. I he's not somebody I've thought about for a very long time, actually, Peter Sellers, mm -hmm. but um, Spike Milligan, Peter Sellers, that crowd. Yeah, The Party is definitely one of my favourite movies of all time. Oh, yes, Peter, The Party. Right, look, I better let you get to bed. Right, but thank you ever so much. Look, so when I do this, I want, I'll put it together. I can, always send, I can always send you a link, and then you can always put it on whatever platforms or places that you might okay. have, because... um. Fans love these things. So um, that's all good. But thank you again for this. Thanks to you. Thanks to you. Yes. And it was really enjoyable. Yeah, well, thank you. Okay, look, take care. Take and care. Best of luck for the year. Now let's keep in contact and uh, I will uh, be uh, expecting your link then. Yes, definitely. Goodbye. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye. Bye-bye. And that... Dear listener, is how you enter conversation very abruptly. Well, no, you don't. You just faff about for several minutes. Anyway, look, that was the interview with, um, yes, the names. You probably guessed that. That was Mikel Sordinia. Um, and if you want to find out any more information about them, I don't know, go and Google about them. I have no idea. They must have a website. Yes, they have. The names.b just B-E. Um, and if you want to contact, contact me, you can. This is David Eastall, The C86 Show. Just go to Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, do C86 Show. Um, keep it positive, otherwise don't bother. Also, yes, I've been doing these interviews for years and years. So there's hundreds of them. They do go on for a very long time. So you can find those on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, just do C86 Show. Indie pop, don't stop. Anyway, have a great week. Stay safe.